Hello and welcome to a few of our favourite things. This week the theme is love and sexuality. So I think for many of us when we think about love the first thing that jumps into our mind is romantic love because that's what our culture is fascinated by and it's the kind of love that's passionate and exciting and makes good art and films and music. But I think it would be it would be wrong to forget about the other kinds of love, like platonic love, familiar love, self-love, all that good, mushy stuff. I have platonic um, love for you. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> You're um, so English. Your response to that is just like, yes, okay, thanks. Okay, thank move on. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't think we would be the fully rounded humans we are without that. And I think it's sorely unrepresented in... Like, there should be more songs about friendship. Also, the love we have for animals, for hobbies and passions, for things like chocolate and sushi. Basically, love is a pretty inadequate word for all these things it describes. <laughs> I think that's such a good point. One of the things I was going to say was that when I did all my ancient Greek studying, there were different types of love, and it really, really struck with me. They, they clearly thought this, like, thousands of years ago. Just one word for love isn't sufficient. Mm. Like, we don't, it's not enough. Eros, which is erotic love, which is where the word erotic comes from. And that that is the word that describes the love that we were talking about, the one that all the films are made about. But then they also had philos, which is the love that you have for friends, family, everyone else. And... I thought that was wonderful because it really named and gave a significance and a, a, an equal level of power to that love as to Eros. Mm. And it feels like sometimes in the world today, we've like forgotten that. They also had one that was called Agape, which was like selfless Ooh. love. So that's more different types of love within love. I think Eros and Philos are the main ones I've always thought of because they're the main yeah. ones that seem to have the most impact on us, really. Totally. And thank you for that insight, David. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Also, sexuality um, is something we're covering as well because we thought they went well together. You can think of it in terms of sexual identity or sexual desire. So, yeah, in the spirit of this <laughs> podcast and our fondness for vague, overarching themes, we're going to talk about all of it, <laughs> or at least whatever we can fit into 30 to 40-ish minutes. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome to our favourite facts and favourite news of the week. The thing I thought has been most affected, obviously, about love and sexuality, that if you're in a relationship, you're basically spending a huge amount of time with your romantic partner. Mm. And if you're lucky, that's actually, for many people, been an amazing time of like life slowing down, spending more time with each other, spending more time cooking, more time just at home in a way that a lot of people, particularly of our generation, just didn't do before if you lived in cities. That's one side of it. But I thought, hang on, if you were dating someone and it was kind of new and then suddenly moved in together at the start of this pandemic, it is huge. And there's going to be so many stories of the amazing... A lot of people have done that. Yeah, loads. Because especially in London, because people didn't want to live in flat shares with other mm. people. They wanted they'd rather be with their partner. They didn't want to not yes. be able to see their partner for like two months. So yeah. um, there'll be amazing love stories, I think, of people who sort of accelerated their relationships. And I think there'll also be stories where people are like what the fuck did I do <laughs> never again <laughs> and then I also thought one of my friends she was using hinge and stuff like that and if you were doing that you might now be like basically virtual dating but with none of the actually meeting up with people mm. BBC News came out yesterday saying that um coronavirus has had a dramatic effect on the way people use the dating app tinder it's bosses Ooh. told BBC News 
Well, yeah, that makes sense. You can't have um, random flings. <laughs> no, well, that's what I found fascinating. They said that user engagement is up, a trend oh. that other dating apps have reported too. Tinder users made 3 billion swipes worldwide on Sunday the 29th of March, the most (laughs) the app has ever recorded in a single day. In the UK, daily conversations rose by 12% between mid-February and the end of March. I did download a new um, dating app, and then I do this a lot. Um, I download new dating apps and then um, promptly undownload them. (laughs) Because I remember I don't like them very much. (laughs) They're horrible. Oh, I have more stats. Okay, Um, so... Platforms like eHarmony, OkCupid and Match also told the BBC they'd seen a big rise in video dates. New York Times, how coronavirus is changing the dating game for the better. Video Mm -hmm. chats are in, small talk is out. You don't have to fret about who picks up the check. And maybe the biggest plus, you're forced to take things slow. (laughs) That's true. All, All good plus points. Maybe it's just going back to what we were saying before, that actually maybe it's actually strengthening things like friendship. You realise the people like, like mm. you really want to talk to, the people who are really yeah. keeping you going, the people you can be totally honest with if you're having a good day or a bad day or whatever. Yeah. Totally. On the other hand, on a very positive news note, lonely cats are meeting potential new owners through virtual dating during lockdown. The Mirror covered this and they said that um, Cats Protection's hands-free homing scheme lets you adopt a cat while shelters remain shut during the pandemic and it has helped turn life around for one bored 11-year-old mm. boy and they highlight a specific cat. Um, oh, such a, good, such a good time to get a new friend. Yeah, they also, stroking um, dogs and cats is good for your mental health. Cool. Are you ready for some facts? I'm so yeah, excited yeah. for the I facts. I got a lot of facts. <laughs> I don't know which facts to choose. Okay. Please do um, loads of facts. People love the facts, I think. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> I love the facts, and that's all that matters. Um, are you familiar with Minnie and Mickey Mouse? Uh, yes, I obviously love the Minnie and the Mickey. Did you know that the, the voice actors who play Minnie and Mickey got married in real life? Really? Russie Taylor and Wayne Allwine. (laughs) I really need to look up how to pronounce things before I start talking. Anyway, yeah, they fell in love and they were married for 18 years until Wayne died in 2009. That's actually really, really, really cute. I know. Do you think they talked in those voices throughout their marriage? Okay, I really don't want to think about them talking in those voices. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, on that note, what words do you use for intercourse sex? Coitus. If anyone's parents are listening, skip um, ten, 10 seconds, 10, 20 seconds. Um, well, I can give you the ones I found. Go for it. Afternoon Delight. <laughs> Dancing the Mattress. One of my personal favourites, Rumbusticating. That's fantastic. <laughs> Stopping, which I must be like... That's Yiddish. a Yiddish word. Yeah. yeah. I this think it's one quite I, rude. <laughs> I mean, they're all rude. This one I... Really apologise for, because it's quite graphic. Um, Spearing the bearded clam. Okay, that's disgusting. (laughs) I know. Horizontal refreshment. That's That's great. That's a 19th century slang there. And testing the mattress. Nice tame one there. I quite like horizontal refreshing. Mm, I think you should you should use that from so now on. It does sound very nineteenth century though. Imagine if you're like, Fancy you like a horizontal refreshment. A spot of horizontal refreshment. I think that, that would go down well. Very sexy. Uh, <laughs> moving swiftly on. One which I read a whole um time article about is about animals and animal friendships. For a long time people thought that it was just humans that were capable of deep friendships. 
but then they started studying animals and they noticed particularly in chimpanzees and dolphins and elephants they show some of the signs of deep connection. Yeah, so in the Time Story, which is called Friends of Benefits, it was written in 2012, um, they talk about a scientist called John Mitani, who followed 160 chimpanzees in Uganda um, for 17 <laughs> years. And one standout bromance was between two older male chimpanzees, who the researchers named Hare and Ellington. Hare and Ellington weren't related, yet when they went on hunting trips with other males, they'd share prey with each other rather than compete for it. If Ellington reached out a hand, Hare would give him a piece of meat. If one of them got into a fight, the other would back him up. Hare and Ellington would spend entire days travelling through the forest together. Sometimes they'd be side by side, other times they'd be a hundred yards apart, staying in touch through the foliage with loud hooting calls. That's so cute. I know, how cute. And then they say when um, Ellington died in like 2002, um, Harry went through a mourning period. Are you aware of the Montezuma chocolate? Um, yes. You might have seen it. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah. It. Well, I didn't realise that was named after um, a Mexican chief, Montezuma, who considered chocolate a love drug and drank 50 cups of chocolate a day before visiting his harem of 600 women. One last one. Yes. A Fact. beautiful romantic story um, about um, penguins. The Adelie and Gentoo penguin species who live on rocky shores and build their nests from small stones. They, during courtship, a male penguin will find the smoothest pebble to give to a female as a gift. Oh. If she likes the gift, she will place it in her nest and they'll both continue to build up the pebble mound in preparation for the eggs. Um, so it's a little bit like, yeah, a proposal. But some some male penguins, you shouldn't marry these male penguins. <laughs> if they can't find their own rock, they'll steal the best-looking pebbles from another penguin and pawn, pawn them off as their own. <laughs> I think we can all learn. They're byline bandits, but for pebbles. What is a byline bandit? Oh, it's a thing in journalism where people like steal other people's stories and then like put their mm. bylines on them. Yes, they are the equivalent of thieving journalists. <laughs> Is it to show that they're able to like have a good eye for stuff, or is it to show they yeah, care? Maybe. Or I don't know. Yeah, they're genetically um, superior because they can spot a smooth pebble. Can you imagine the penguins waddling up to the other penguin, being like, <laughs> "I'm going to get your pebble now." I would, I would slap it. No, I wouldn't. With your wing. Penguin. Oh, am I a penguin in this scenario? Yeah, because we're okay. all penguins in this scenario. Okay, so then yes. <laughs> I'd, I'd um. Just bump it into the water. Excellent. Cool. Our favourite film of the week this week is an award-winning new film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It came out earlier this year from writer-director Celine Sciamma and it won huge plaudits at Cannes and at and Cesar Awards and I think loads of other sort of filmy awards. It centres on two women and it's set in the late 18th century in Brittany and it's an exploration of art and what it means to be painted and it's also an exploration of a love story that comes between these two women. So the first woman is called Marianne and she's tasked to paint this young lady who came from a convent and is now about to be married off to a sort of Milanese nobleman. The setup of the film is that 
this Parisian painter is tasked to come to this remote location and paint a painting of someone who doesn't want to be painted and doesn't like the situation she's in. And it becomes so much more than that as a film. It's it's actually quite hard to summarise as an intro, but that's the basic premise of of Mm. what the film is. Yes. Celine said, she said it was a film dedicated to love, a patient look at how love and desire is born, how it grows, but also the memory of a love story, what is left, which I thought was really beautiful. There's two time frames. There's Marianne in the present, I guess, as she teaches an art class, and there's the time of the love story. That's so kind sort of a of, framing device, right? It's yeah. Like you begin and you end it, with yeah. the class. Yeah, but it creates the idea of memory and Marianne looking back because she sees a painting that she painted of Eloise on fire. <laughs> Which is called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And actually, yeah. in French, it's called Portrait de... Un, I think it's a jeune, jeune fils. It's Portrait of a Young Girl. But obviously, oh, really? in the English... Yeah, in the English title, they've played on the Henry ah. James Portrait of a Lady. Yeah, so I guess memory comes up in that way. And also just the act of painting is the an act of remembering and preserving memory. Um um, how much do you know about the female gaze? Essentially, it's like most of art throughout most of time, as with pretty much everything else in the entire universe, has been seen through a male perspective. Male artists would have models who are women, or men, but if they were women, that, that these women were always being painted, always being depicted, always being seen through the lens of a man, through the male gaze, how they were painted, how mm. they were shown. And the idea of the female gaze is that it, it's a woman looking at another woman and creating her own representation of what being a woman is and looks like yeah that's also goes as far as because the director is a woman so it's a woman (laughs) portraying two women portraying each other the whole thing felt like a very female (laughs) film there were no men in the film it was a completely female space yeah also when i was reading about it the um the cinematographer is a woman um i think other crew members were women but it's definitely um i think she must have done that on purpose to create like a female environment in the actual film they do talk about how Marianne is the daughter of a very famous painter mm. and she is allowed therefore some jobs she has choice that's a big thing in the film she has the choice not to marry because she has this career because of her father's a painter mm. she's a painter but she says I'm not allowed to paint men because they want to limit the scope of our inquiry as women oh, they want to limit yeah. her ability and that really stuck out to me and then she says but I do it in secret anyway she has this yeah. amazing power but it is all I, I guess it runs through the film that, mm. that them doing also that. at the end um when they're looking at her painting in a gallery but it's under her dad's name because yes. she says it wouldn't have been accepted if it was under her name Eloise has avoided having her portrait painted or she's resisted and she's resisting marriage. So she's resisting being objectified by the male gaze Mm. in the beginning. And then as the film goes on, the gaze becomes more of a neutral thing because they're both gazing at each other and it becomes more equal. And something that I saw in one video I watched about it was they said... (laughs) A little cheesy, but I liked it. Marianne doesn't only look at her, she sees her. And in that way, the film is political. It's it's making a political statement. But for me, that felt like the subplot, but it worked really well. Talking of political significance, there's a another subplot that's very powerful about the maid who is called Sophie and she gets pregnant and they have this sort of backstreet abortion and they stay with her and they watch her. And to be honest, I mm. think it's incredible it was on film. But I was yeah. I was genuinely had to look away. I couldn't watch it. There's also a scene leading up to that or setting up that whole abortion storyline where Marianne starts her period. 
Oh, which yes. Also, yes. It's also fairly political because how often do you see that in cinema? You don't at all. And almost when it came mm. on, you know, when you saw her tossing and turning in the bed, it was almost like I couldn't believe that we were actually, that was what we were seeing. As it dawned on me that it was, she was yeah. going to get those hot hot cherry stones to help mm. her period pain. I was like, wow. Also, it felt so, so real the way she discovered her period. Yeah, like, that in is the middle of the happens. night. You wake up yeah. feeling hot, headachy and miserable. And then you're mm. suddenly like, oh God, I'm in pain. And then, uh, yeah. It's a surprise Yay. every month. It's great to be a woman. <laughs> but it um, was. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about that because I think it's something that's so important. Both of those are, are political statements and they're amazingly done. And I've never seen it like that in film before. Yeah, so you mentioned that, that you thought it was quite slow building. It was quite a slow film. I think that was intentional. Like she perhaps, the director purposely used long, lingering shots. I think just to create the sense of something growing slowly. Mm of gazing I guess gazing isn't a very quick activity maybe also just a sense of the time period like nothing moved very fast in the 18th century you're so right and I think that that is exactly what it did and I think there's a sense at some at a certain point I think it's about an hour into the film when you Mm. keep seeing those gazes and those shots are so slow and so Mm. long and you just almost want them to kiss you just want them to move on you're just like ah come on but then that's powerful yeah it builds the tension one of the other main themes that we should mention is the art in the film and the art of the film um so I, I looked into the artist who painted the art in the film. She's called Helen Delmer, mm. another woman. She does a lot of female-focused art, but she has a series called Eyeless, which is a series of women with their eyes covered in some way, so either by gloves or by flowers or just smudged wow. with paint. Why is that? So I, I, I mean, I wonder whether that's why um, the director chose her to be the artist of the film because that's also sort of about the female gaze, mm. isn't it? A couple of other quick things. The colours are quite muted. I don't know if you noticed. And they even, they planned to have grey skies in the outside scenes, but when they got there, it was sunny and blue skies. Um, and they decided to just go with it because, as the director said, the film should be luminous. It's a love story. How did you feel watching it as someone who draws and who creates things? Like I was in my element. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just it felt very comforting to me. It's definitely my kind of film, Ladies in Love and Art. I think in summary... It might be look like a film that someone's like, oh, it's a very arty film. It's one that like won all these awards and it looks quite slow and whatever. But it's it's not. It is the last the last five minutes of that film. And I'm not going to spoil mm. it because I really don't want to spoil the ending. No. It is some of the best acting, facial acting of any mm. actor I have ever seen, ever yeah. seen. And the, the the way the film brings you along with it, it makes you love the characters and mm. also just get into that that. You felt like you were really in a different world, in a different time, in a different, in a slower pace. Um, yeah. It took you along with the love story. It, 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 it is worth following through, even if you think it's a film that's not for you, because by the end, mm-hmm. you'll probably be crying. <laughs> so yeah. that, that would be I, my I, summary, I think. That's a brilliant summary. I think um, everyone should watch it, even if it's not a film that you would usually choose to watch. So, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Six. Sixty-seven thousand stars. So, Nam, uh, following that 18th century lady love story, and because it's almost Pride Month, I'm going to read you a modern-day story of sexual discovery. Um, Thank brace you. Brace yourself. It's about me. 
You were there for quite a lot of it, being my best friend, but I'm going to try and fill in the details that you missed. In my younger years, I became obsessed with a musical television show featuring the love story of two queer women. It was the first time I remember seeing a gay relationship depicted on television in such a positive way. Gayness had always seemed like something to avoid, something that you didn't want to be, because being queer marked you out as different, and being too different was frightening. I used to come home from boring dates with boys chanting to myself, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. But this show presented it as something to be celebrated, not suppressed. The years blew by and I didn't dwell on it much until I moved in with you, Nomi, and our dear friend EJ in my early 20s and decided to start an experiment. I had a pretty strong suspicion I was bisexual, but how could I really know, I told myself, unless I tested the theory. So I ventured out in London to find other bi people and record my findings. <laughs> I went to meetups and speed dating events. I went on some dates with girls I didn't really like. And then at a completely unrelated animation event, I met a girl I fell in love with. There we go, I thought. I can officially confirm my queer status. But really, who were we kidding? I sent an email to my mum declaring my sexuality, that I love people, not gender, and waited nervously for days until I eventually texted my mum to ask if she'd got my email. She hadn't. I can't oh remember God. what her <laughs> exact words were when she read it, but they were good and accepting, and it was a massive relief. I know I'm incredibly lucky to have grown up in this time and country with the freedom that I did and with the family and friends I have, but I hope this story provides some hope for those in more difficult circumstances. Remember, there are always people out there who will accept you for who you are. That's so beautiful. <laughs> no, thank you so there much you for sharing that. I feel very honoured that you shared that. Of course. Um, we should mention there are lots of LGBT charities if anybody needs support. But some of the main ones are the Trevor Project, which is for younger people, I think up to 25, um, Stonewall, and the LGBT Foundation. I think there are more, but um, yeah, we'll write about those in the show notes. I was going to ask you just, just while we're here, mm-hmm. like, do you think, did being honest with people about how you felt, was it releasing when you told people that? It feels really good to not feel like you're hiding anything, I think. I think, yeah, the biggest spike of happiness was when I told my parents, because I think they're the people you're the most nervous about not accepting you. Yeah. Um, and also I had in my head that my parents were quite conservative people because we had, didn't really have an environment where we talked a lot about feelings my dad once walked out of Brokeback Mountain, <laughs> so I, I wasn't I didn't have much confidence, but they were like surprisingly accepting, um, even my dad. So, yeah, that was a ma- it's a massive weight off your shoulders, definitely. I think what I wanted to say as well was just I'm so happy that you are happy and that you, that it all works out and and that you can explore everything and you can start exploring new things when the world opens up again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, when we can touch other humans again, that would be nice. (laughs) We are so thrilled to have EJ on the podcast. Um, She is a reading expert and ferocious reader, is that the way Mm. you say it? And she has read amazing books around the topic of the week, which is love and sexuality. And... We wanted to have her on to explain why they're so powerful and which books she recommends people read and just to generally share her wisdom. Oh, you've made me sound great. <laughs> you've known us for a long time. 
yeah, I have. And then we lived together um, for two years when we were first living in London. Um, and I am a bit about me. I'm currently on furlough, so I'm gardening all the time and reading all the time. <laughs> and I've kind of become a middle-aged woman. Retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've retired and it's lovely. I went through a phase in my 20s of not reading that much. And then a few years ago, I thought, oh, I, I really want to make the effort to, to read more. So I set myself a target of a certain amount of books to read by the end of the year. And it just, it, it really worked because it, it just meant that I wouldn't watch another episode or something on Netflix. I'd say, okay, no, it's, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to read for a bit in bed now. And I feel like I'm putting the time into reading about so many things that I care about, whether that's like hobbies or different kinds of perspectives or just fiction books that are really like interesting. So I'm, I'm investing that time in learning and thinking about things and reflecting but also it's just, it's so soothing and mm. I find it so relaxing. And I'm really glad that I got a Kindle just before oh, yeah. lockdown. <laughs> it just means that if I want a book, I, I can just get it. But, oh, it's so different to reading a book and actually feeling it in your hands mm. and, and seeing your progress as well. And smelling it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the books that I want to talk about are Modern Love, which is edited by Daniel Jones. And that's a collection of articles that were sent into the New York Times um, and they were published weekly over the past sort of 16 years about loads of different kinds of love whether that's relationship love or platonic love or familiar love and the other book I want to talk about is Three Women which is written by Lisa Tadeo um, which looks at um, three women's accounts of their relationships and their sex lives and their desires and their needs over the course of their lifetimes, but it's written um, from Lisa going and talking to this woman for eight whole years. I was trying to read Wolf Hall, which is not what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> um, and it was there's just so many characters, and you keep mm. having to go back to this like um, family tree at the start of the book to try and work out who is who. It's just so complicated. And so I downloaded um, Modern Love, which that. Um, Amazon series from last year is based on and it's it's just so perfect for lockdown because you can just like dip in and out of it and it's also really heartwarming and so that's what I've sort of has been seeing me through that sounds ideal were there any particular stories that stood out to you or that you like oh my god were your yeah, there, were, there were so many and I thought at first I don't know why I thought this but I thought I'd prefer the ones that were on the tv series because I've seen the TV series and thought, oh, they'll feel familiar and it'll be interesting to read actually mm. the story behind the, the TV adaptations of them. But there were so, there's just so many in there that really moved me. And a lot of the ones, I, I thought after I'd read it, that a lot of the ones that were the best were ones that were kind of like a Trojan horse story, you know, where you think you're reading about one thing. And then as the, the story's going along, you realise it's actually, it's actually about something else entirely there's one which is about um about a man who goes on a date and he then has a one night stand and you think it's um gonna be an, a sort of an article about um dating as a gay man about one night stands about desire but over the course of the date he is ignoring um a lot of phone calls from his family and it turns out that his dad went to hospital over the course of the night and when he finally returns the calls the next morning 
um, his dad's in a coma. Oh, God. He, he missed the chance to, um, like, speak to his dad for the last time because his dad dies quite soon afterwards. Mm. And it's really a story about loss and, like, overwhelming regrets. But you think it's going to be quite a light story about sort of dating in New York in your 20s. Wow. It's, it was just, it was so moving. The other one, which I think is probably my, my favourite one, is a story which you think is going to be about a woman and her sort of love for the Beatles. Um, and she, she talks about how she can't really listen to the Beatles anymore, but when she was a child, she absolutely adored them and then became obsessed with them. Um, and then she loved them so much that when her children were born, she would sing their songs to them as lullabies. And then her youngest child, her daughter, became obsessed with the Beatles. Um, and then her youngest daughter dies and it's actually a story, I don't know why the ones I picked both are death, I'm so sorry, there are so <laughs> many like heartwarming ones, but this story is about um, what it's like when you, you pass on something you love to someone else you love, and then you've got to, you've got to, she just, she hears the Beatles everywhere she goes, when she goes mm. into shops, when she's in restaurants, and how you can't really escape the things that are, mm. um, that are so entwined with memories of people. I know I think I think maybe you picked them subconsciously because we're having to deal with death and thinking about death at the moment in a way that we probably haven't ever in our lives really like on a sort of continually around us scale so like it could be really helpful for us all to read them at this time as well just for that yeah. reason yeah you're right but it's also it's also about connection and mm-hmm. loads of other things that are we, we're completely missing out on at the moment that yeah. There are so many elements of all the stories that sort of touch on things that I'm finding myself getting quite emotional about just throughout the days in general, mm. whether it is like death or anxiety about losing people or just missing people and missing those connections. I was actually reading a bit from the one about the Beatles just before we chatted and I almost cried because it's mm. just the, the sort of last page of it is just so moving the way that she she talks about how... Um, she thought that there was no greater love when she was a teenager than her love for Paul McCartney. But becoming a mother has really sort of turned that on its head. It's just a really beautiful way of, of that she's written it. <clears throat> How foolish I was to have fallen so easily for Paul while overlooking John and George, to have believed that everything I could ever want was right there in that family room of my childhood. Cousins, TV, my favourite music. But mostly I feel foolish of believing that my time with my daughter would never end. Or perhaps that is love, a leap of faith, a belief in the impossible, the ability to believe that a little girl in a small town in Rhode Island would grow up to marry Paul McCartney, or for a grieving woman to believe that a mother's love is so strong that the child she lost can still hear her singing a lullaby. That's so powerful. Yeah. Also, I love that you picked a story that was um, family love rather than romantic love. Yeah, the two stories. Romantic love. Oh, I did, didn't I? Maybe I'm just really missing my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There aren't many romantic ones. There, there are sort of. It's split into sections, and the first lot are about dating, and then as it moves on, like the next section is about being in a long-term relationship, and all the stories kind of have that similar thread going through them, and then towards the end, they're more about familial love. and the ones, the ones that are about dating are actually quite funny. Like the book is, I know I've, I've like, talked about really depressing ones, but the book is so funny because a lot of the essays 
some of them are more serious, but some of the writers have just got a really great way of phrasing things and they're really self-aware and that in itself is really funny. But the ones that I found the most moving and that probably resonated with me at the moment are the ones about family. Three Women, it's another non-fiction book. It focuses on three different women and the woman who, who wrote the book um, talked to these three different women over eight years to get a picture of, of their lives and how desire and and love and and feeling feeling like you want to be wanted and all that sort of feelings around sex, how they manifest in their lives. Some of the chapters are about Sloane, who um, her husband likes to watch her have sex with other people, and so but she's the one who features in it the least. And I'm, I just want to know more about her because that is just such a like an interesting dynamic that I would ne- I just can't relate to mm. at all. It's just it's just mad. But she features in it the least. There's also a woman who her husband isn't attracted to her and she just wants to be desired and she ends up leaving him. Mm. And then the other story is the one that features in it the most and it's um, a story that was also in in the news I think at the, at the time. Um, it's about a girl who has a an affair with her teacher and then about five years later um, she takes him to court and it's all about kind of the the desire that she feels but also you can so clearly see the abuse and the way that he's mm. trying he is trying to control her and that he's, he's just a human being who's making he's doing he's clearly attracted to a student but you can see the abuse of power there it's, it's fascinating. It's won loads of um, praise, right, for being one of the first books to describe... I, I can't remember exactly what the reviews were saying, but it was like it's one, it's one of the first books to describe sort of female sexuality in such different ways and in real-life contexts and addressing those difficult topics about around, you know, consensual consensuality and power and from a woman's lens. Because a lot of the time when that was written about in the past, like Foucault and whoever, it was always written through the sense about sex and power but always it was from a male perspective yeah and you I, I do get a feeling as I'm reading it because I'm, I'm I've almost finished but I haven't finished it yet and I do get a feeling that like it's almost like the writer the author is trying to right the wrongs of mm. just so so many decades and centuries of men sort of writing about women and their sexuality and even just when you're reading a, a book of fiction and a male writer has written a sex scene <laughs> and you just think mm, I, no that's just not mm. that's a really weird way for you to write about how women feel desire or any of those sort of things um and it's like the the writer is is through just she's she's really clear that these are just three stories and that these are very specific to these women but it's like she's saying, look, this is how women talk about their own desire. This is mm. how women talk about their own like transgressions or the things that they're ashamed of and the things that they um, that you never really hear hear talked about. Yeah. It, Why do you think she picked those three stories? I don't know. I've been thinking that. I guess one of they were all at the heart of them. There are issues from their their teenage lives, which have run through into their their adult lives. Um, two of them suffered abuse as teenagers, and one of them had an eating disorder. And they have kind of that they have dictated how they see their bodies and how they have then 
how that sort of shaped their lives, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that's almost that's almost universal. I think every woman has got so many issues that mm. she then she brings to every relationship that she has that she Yay. Like, works. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Such a fun conversation. <laughs> but you know, every everyone yeah. Yeah. Not just women, like men as well. Everyone has like things that you've got to deal with and you've mm. got to work through. Yeah. But you if you're with someone who's understanding and like wants to work with you through those things, it's not a problem. But yeah. these stories sort of show that it does it has become problems for these women. Sounds really good, but I'll be honest, I don't want to read this one as much as the other one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I've been meaning to read it for ages because it got so much, so, so, so much, like, positive, many positive reviews, but I think it felt heavy. So, you know, it's one yeah. of those ones that you want to, but then you haven't quite approached. So you're like, oh. But what's mad, because I thought it would be heavy, and the things that I've talked about do sound heavy. <laughs> but I have just, like, raced through it. I only oh. started reading it a couple of days ago, and I'm, I'm, I've almost finished it. It's just, it's so interesting and it almost reads like fiction. Forget okay. that you're, you're reading, because she talks about each of the people in the third person and it's, you forget that you're reading about real lives. If you had to summarise, like, why you think reading about topics like love and sexuality is so important, why, what would you say that would be? I think that... There is so much about how we love and also how we desire people that is wrapped up in other parts of our lives, mm. like how we feel about ourselves, and and there's just there's no, I don't, you know what, I don't know, but I just think it's such a universal thing, and if everybody loves and has issues with romantic mm. love, issues with friends, issues with their family. And they all play out in such different ways, but there is something about stories about love and about sexuality that is still so universal. Mm. If it's well written, that you can you can cling on to and you can think through and will help you understand your own life, or you can apply to your your friends or your family and say, "Oh my God, maybe that's why yeah. this mm. person in my life um, feels this way about that person, or yeah. can't talk to them anymore, or all of these things." And it helps you. Because love isn't just romantic love, it is friendship or it is mm. loving a career or a calling or, or, or a cat. things like that. Or a cat, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very specifically a cat. Every week we end on a poem or a quote or something. And last week it was an amazing poem about spaghetti and sound effects. <laughs> but um, I I thought for this week there were two poems that they're not new, they're not modern, and there probably are incredible modern poems I would want to share. But these are two of the ones that have been my favourites through my whole life. So when I, was when I first thought about love and falling in romantic love was when I was probably about like seven and oh. I watched Sense and Sensibility you know the the adaptation it had just come out when we were small but the adaptation of um Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet yeah. and Greg Wise and Alan Rickman mm. and it is one of the best films ever so you should watch it um <laughs> and it's actually I'm really really bad at memorizing quotes and poems but this one poem the Shakespeare sonnet I like learn off by heart because it was in the film and in the film she says it off by heart and it's I think it's when Marianne speaks to 
um, it was either to Willoughby or to, I can't Another remember. Marianne. Yeah, it's another Marianne. Oh. And she says this poem and it always just stuck with me as one of the most beautiful poems about love. So I will read it now. What's it is it Sonnet 116 from by William, Sha- William Shakespeare, obviously by Shakespeare. Who's he? <laughs> it's called <laughs> Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds. And it goes, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose words unknown though his height be taken. Love is not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved... I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Oh, I love that sonnet so much. It's the best ever, don't you think? Because it, it, yeah. it covers love and it just covers that sense of like, if you really love someone, it doesn't matter if they get old or if they get, if, if they don't they don't look the, the way they did when you fell in love with them, mm. but you'll love them forever. And, and, and if that isn't true, if that isn't what real love is, then there is no mm. love. And I just thought it was just so powerful and it speaks yeah. to everyone. I think I built how I feel about romantic love around that poem too. <laughs> The other one is a fragment of Sappho poetry, so I thought it was really appropriate to the film. Mm. So Sappho was the earliest female Greek poet that we know about, and she wrote on the island of Lesbos, and she was, all the scholars say that she basically, she was a lesbian, and she wrote about lesbian poetry and lesbian love as Mm. one of the first poets we ever have, and a lot of her poems are just fragments, Mm. Um, but but they're, they're incredibly powerful and they talk about love. This is from a Culture Trip article. They've actually written it really well. Sappho's Fragment 31 is entitled Jealousy by a number of translators. It is a lovesick lament and it's an ode to the anxiety of attraction. So it's like a burning love, that sense of desire when you see someone. Um, of all the legendary ancient Greek poets, estimated 10,000 works, only 650 survive today, most of them in fragments. Luckily for us, this particular piece was saved by being quoted in an ancient work of criticism. So it's called Fragment 31. And it's this by Sappho, the ancient Greek poet, and this is the translation of Sherrod Santos. He must feel blooded with the spirit of a god to sit opposite you and listen and reply to your talk, your laughter, your touching, breath-held silences. But what I feel sitting here and watching you so stops my heart and binds my tongue that I can't think what I might say to breach the aureole around you there. It is as if someone with flint and stone had sparked a fire that kindled the flesh along my arms and smothered me in its smoke-blind rush. Paler than summer grass, it seems, I am already dead, or little short of dying. And um, basically, the amazing thing to me is that that was so, so long ago. It was thousands yeah. of years ago, and she wrote about that sense of looking at someone who she loved. Um, yeah. That was so A powerful. woman that she loved and, and not being able to have her and feeling that huge sense of like jealousy and also just desire rushing through her and I just thought the fact that shows that the human experience of love is so Mm. constant and so real that was what I thought universal yeah yeah wow universal through time as well as along Mm. cultures and everything what a powerful note to end on yay (laughs) wonderful I hope everyone goes into their day or night feeling empowered (laughs) by love sending love Dip, 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 dip.